0: President Biden's legal team says it's found a second group of classified documents from his time as vice president. They were in a different location than the first batch. It's Thursday, January 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, wages are rising, but inflation is pushing costs up at a faster rate. It just feels like Somebody's got a can on a chain. They keep pulling a little farther away from us every time we get close to the prize. Also this hour, a sneak peek at The Embrace, Boston's new memorial for Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King.
1: It is Boston's Statue of Liberty. And so I think when people come here, I hope they feel a sense of pride and ownership that this was created in Boston and that the King's origin story started
0: here. And the federal government is investigating yesterday's FAA computer glitch that grounded flights. In sports, the Celtics win, cloudy to start, rain this afternoon, near 40. It's 7.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Thousands of unionized nurses have ended their strike against two major New York City hospitals. They walked out Monday demanding the hospitals address the problems of understaffing. They say too few nurses have been forced to care for too many people at the same time, and that put patient safety at risk. Nancy Hagens is president of the New York State Nurses Association. She says nurses are returning to their jobs this hour.
3: They are excited to go back to work and- caring for their patients so their patients deserve to be taken care of.
2: Montefiore Medical Center of New York says it's committed to providing nurses with the best working environment and wage and benefit enhancements. The Federal Aviation Administration says yesterday morning's vexing national ground stop of airline flights was the fault of a damaged computer database file. The FAA says there's no evidence of a cyber attack, but an investigation is ongoing. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin are praising Japan for its plans to double its defense spending over the next few years. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports both of them met with their Japanese counterparts at the State Department.
4: Defense Secretary Austin says Japan has made bold decisions and Secretary Blinken says the countries are more closely aligned, especially when it comes to dealing with China.
5: We agree that the PRC is the greatest shared strategic challenge that we and our allies and partners face.
4: Japan's foreign minister says China poses a, quote, unprecedented challenge. The two sides are both announcing plans to beef up defenses and put more agile forces in Okinawa. They're also signing a space cooperation agreement. Blinken says any attack in space could trigger a mutual defense treaty. Japan's prime minister will be at the White House on Friday. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. First Lady Jill Biden
2: had three skin lesions removed at Walter Reed Medical Center yesterday. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, President Biden's doctor says all the cancerous tissue was successfully removed.
6: Dr. Kevin O'Connor says the First Lady's face is swollen, but she's in good spirits after the procedure. She had been slated to have one small lesion removed from above her right eye, which was confirmed to be basal cell carcinoma. But while she was there, doctors also noticed another small lesion on her left eyelid. That was removed and sent for examination. Doctors had also identified an additional area of concern on the left side of her chest, which was also confirmed to be basal cell carcinoma. O'Connor said that basal cell carcinoma lesions do not tend to spread like other serious cancers do, but they can grow in size, making them harder to remove. Franco Ordonez,
2: NPR News, the White House. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, stock futures are mixed. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Boston's unreliable school transportation system is also one of the most expensive in the country. A new report blames a mix of long-term and structural problems as well as a simple lack of coordination. WBR's Max Larkin reports.
7: In an agreement with the state, Boston committed to a 95% on time arrival rate for its school buses, but it's still struggling to meet that goal. The report's authors blame factors including a jumble of 24 different school start times and students living far from their schools. BPS Superintendent Mary Skipper says fixing all that is a top priority.
8: We've certainly made progress in many areas, but we know we've got a really long way to go. We have to get this right. They have to be able to rely on safe and reliable transportation.
7: The report recommends streamlining school start times and gathering more data about student enrollment and costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin.
0: The city of Cambridge is hosting a community meeting tonight to talk about the fatal shooting of a resident by a police officer. Police killed 20-year-old Saeed Faisal last week. They say he charged at them with a knife. Others believe he was having a mental health crisis. The Middlesex DA and other city officials will be at the meeting to answer questions about the investigation. A new study finds racial disparities and plea bargains approved by the Berkshire County District Courts. Nancy Cohn reports. The Wilson Center at Duke Law School worked collaboratively with the Berkshire DA's office to analyze 12 months of plea bargains. Researcher Adele Quigley McBride says among those who took a plea bargain in district court. Black individuals were more likely to receive a conviction than their white counterparts white people were definitely more likely to receive what's called a continuance without a finding, which avoids a conviction on their record.
9: In other words, white people in district court were able to secure deals that would have less impact
0: on their future. When it came to sentencing, the study didn't find statistically significant racial disparities. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. The New England Commission on Higher Education will meet today to review the accreditation status of Bay State College. The private for-profit college has campuses in Boston and Taunton. The Commission put the school on probation last spring over financial concerns and accusations it defrauded students. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley have urged the Commission to carefully scrutinize Bay State's accreditation status. It's 706.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com.
0: The Celtics beat the New Orleans Pelicans 125-114 to 114 last night at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Brooklyn Nets tonight. Also tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will host the Seattle Kraken. In your forecast, cloudy to start today. Rain likely this afternoon. The high will be near 40. More rain overnight with some gusty winds. It'll get warmer overnight, up to the low 50s. More showers tomorrow morning, then clouds and a high in the mid to upper 50s. Dry in 30 for the weekend. It's 30 degrees in Boston at
10: 7.07. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video,
11: chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, DC.
5: And I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. From trouble in Congress to trouble in the skies, the U.S. aviation sector is slowly returning to normal this morning after a computer outage caused disruptions nationwide.
11: Yeah, the Federal Aviation Administration grounded all U.S. departing flights yesterday morning for 90 minutes so the issue could be fixed. The outage of a pre-flight safety notification system called NOTAM forced airlines to cancel more than 1,300 flights and delay nearly 10,000 more. The FAA says it's investigating what happened. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg called it another challenging day for U.S. aviation.
5: Oh, yeah. In fact, to learn more about what happened we're joined by reporter leslie joseph she covers airlines for cnbc leslie i'm sure folks who aren't flying this week are happy have authorities discovered what caused the system to go down
3: they do have a rough idea of what caused it and it's linked back to this Corrupted database file uh, that appeared to be getting uploaded um, mm. And then they thought the issue was fixed all of this goes back to Tuesday afternoon, you know more than 12 hours before uh, Passengers started to really feel the impact um, They thought it was fixed then they had to go back. They realized they had the same problem and then they essentially Decided to pull the plug and start the system over again
5: And, and this is quite an old system right it goes back to the 50s?
3: It does. I mean, they are in the process of modernizing it. The issue is with this bad file. I mean, if you've ever tried to attach something to an email that, uh, you know, maybe it was a corrupted file and you just kept hitting the the same wall and the person receiving the email wasn't able to open it. Right. um, Their backup system was getting the same bad data. That's what we've heard. So they were unable to address it. And, you know, this is one of those cases where redundancy didn't help them at all.
5: Yeah. Have we ever seen a tech error like this before?
3: I certainly haven't in my five years on the beat. I talked to pilots who said they've never seen it in decades. Um, so it is very, very unusual. It's also unusual what the FAA did, which was essentially shut down the air system, prevent any planes from taking off. Usually, you see this in, you know, pockets when there's bad weather, or you know, one airline has their own IT outage, and, and they want to slow down their arrivals. So this is extremely unusual. It, like you said, it only lasted about 90 minutes, but the residual delay, you know, a lot of these planes had nowhere to park. So this lasted all day. About 10,000 flights in total were delayed yesterday.
5: My goodness. More of an inconvenience issue than a safety issue because no planes took off. But we do recall Southwest and its big meltdown over the holidays. Now, do these two events suggest maybe a bigger problem within aviation technology?
3: Well, the technology that underpins the aviation system, and we have the most complex and busiest air system in the world, um, it is old and it does need to be updated. It's just hard to update it. You need funding for the FAA, of course. You know, they need more money, they need more people to do that. Uh, certainly, same thing with airlines, but it, it takes a long time. It's, it's not something that you could, you know, just download a new OS and, and there you are. So, you know, FAA, it's also a political issue, and it's a big question of funding. You know, Southwest is dealing with their own issues, different platforms, but again, this, this, these issues seem to come up again and again.
5: Yeah. Leslie Josephs, thank you for joining us. She's an airline reporter for CNBC.
3: My pleasure. For
11: more on yesterday's systems failure and what it says about the state of our aviation system, we're turning to Mike Whitaker. He's a former deputy administrator at the FAA and is the current chief commercial officer at Supernel, which is Hyundai Motor Group's air taxi company. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Okay, so what was your reaction when you heard about this system outage and all flights being grounded?
12: Well, it's always a, a pretty dramatic thing when you ground all flights. So obviously there was a very serious safety issue. And I think when you're dealing with unavailability of NOTAMs, that was probably the only avenue that FAA had available.
11: Is this a fluke? Was this a fluke? Or are there inherent flaws with the U.S. aviation system?
12: Well, I think it is It is a fluke. It's a very old system, but it's a pretty reliable system. It's, it's administered by, the, uh, by ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. It's a branch of the UN. Uh, Almost 200 companies use NOTAMs, so with international aviation you need that international standard so you've got the same information, the same abbreviations, the same format no matter where you're flying. So it's an old system, but we haven't had this type of failure before.
11: Um, I just want to play something that somebody told us yesterday on All Things Considered, Jeff Freeman, President and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association. Great.
10: We simply are not investing in the technology in the people that we need to build an air travel experience that the traveling public can appreciate, an experience that they enjoy, an experience that they deserve.
11: So does the FAA need new technology upgrades and why hasn't that happened?
12: It is a complicated question. They definitely need new investment. They need new technology. They're uh, subject to a funding model that's pretty inconsistent. Congress passes authorizations, they pass budgets. Uh, Those are inconsistent, they're not predictable, they're short term, and then you have things like government shutdowns that interfere with the process. So you need investment, you don't have a stable source of funding, Um, and you need investment not just to keep the current system running, but to uh, accommodate new technologies like flying air taxis.
11: What's your view on what some Republicans in the past have called for, the privatization of air traffic control?
12: Privatization is certainly one solution and that, that could work. It's worked elsewhere. I think the, the key is to look at the problem you're solving for, which is a stable budget. You could achieve that in a number of ways. You could, you could take it off the normal congressional pattern of funding and have a, have a separate funding source. Uh, or you could privatize, but the, the key is to try to get stable funding and, and, and make those investments.
11: Now, the FAA hasn't had a permanent administrator for nearly a year. How much does that affect U.S. aviation not having stable leadership?
12: Well, I think they do have stable, stable leadership. I think the acting administrator has done a great job. But it is a, it is a, a time of transition. A lot of new, new startups in this space who, who are hiring from the FAA, they need to build the bench. Um, so I think it, it's important to invest in the people as well.
11: So the FAA dealing with staff shortages that we're seeing across industries.
12: I think that's right.
11: Is the FAA in its current form equipped to keep American aviation safe and stable?
12: Well, I think as your previous guest mentioned, it is the busiest and the safest system in the world, but it's not the most efficient. Um, so I think it's, it's gonna stay safe. I think the, the, the place we feel the pain is sometimes you have these, these glitches that keep it from running smoothly.
11: Yeah. And it's terrible if you're at the airport trying to get somewhere, especially around the holidays. You know, there were questions yesterday about whether this was a cyber attack. And I'm wondering about the vulnerability of the system. Is it a safe system in that aspect?
12: Well, ironically, because the system is so old, it's it's maybe less vulnerable to cyber attack because it's not as connected and modern as some other systems. Uh, this is, cybersecurity has always been a major, major focus for the FAA. So I think so far the track record is pretty good in that space.
11: Are there any lessons learned here?
12: I think the lessons learned is, you know, we don't really have a redundancy system for NOTAMs. Uh, we have redundant computer systems, but there's just one source of data. So if that data is not, not, not solid or corrupted, uh, it does create a vulnerability, and your only real option is to ground the system.
11: Which c- has created a lot of chaos at the airport. Mike Whitaker was deputy administrator at the FAA, and currently he's chief commercial officer at Supernel Hyundai Motor Group's air taxi company. Thank you so much for your time.
5: Thank you. Several people aboard the International Space Station learned yesterday that their stay is being extended by several months after their spacecraft was damaged in orbit. The Russian space agency said it plans to launch an uncrewed Soyuz spacecraft next month. That capsule will replace the one that flew two cosmonauts and a NASA astronaut to the station last September. Brendan Byrne of member station WMFE in Orlando has more.
7: It's been four weeks since the cosmonauts and astronauts aboard the space station were stunned to look out the windows to see something leaking from a docked Soyuz spacecraft that flew three of them to the orbiting lab last year.
13: We are uh, still in uh, concert uh, with the Russian flight controllers outside of Moscow evaluating A stream of particles that appears to be coming from the Soyuz MS-22.
7: That stream of particles turned out to be coolant. An investigation by the Russian Space Agency determined a meteoroid strike was to blame.
6: Just like if you're in a car and a rock pops up and Hits your radiator fluid and it leaks out. You can drive the car for a little while, but you
7: don't want to drive it for too long. Retired NASA astronaut Terry Virts flew to the station in 2015 on a Soyuz capsule. He says the coolant is an important part of the vehicle.
6: In the same way that you can fly the Soyuz for a little while, but the computers and most importantly, the people inside will start to overheat pretty quickly.
7: With no way to radiate heat, it would be an uncomfortable flight with temperatures in the capsule expected around 100 degrees. And because of that, the leaky capsule isn't safe to transport crew back home in March as scheduled. Now it will return to earth at some point empty. So Russia is sending a new Soyuz without a crew to the station next month.
10: We're not calling it a rescue Soyuz.
7: NASA's Joel Monteblano says at no point was the crew in immediate danger. But capsules aren't just for transporting people to and from the station. They're lifeboats in case of an emergency, like a fire or chemical leak on the station. Astronauts can take refuge in the capsule, but should they need to evacuate the station altogether? Sergei Krikalev of the Russian space agency Roscosmos believes the Soyuz could still fly in an emergency.
6: Soyuz is not good for nominal reentry, but in case of emergency, with extra risk, we are going to use this Soyuz at this point.
7: For that reason, the agencies are working with SpaceX to possibly use its Dock Dragon capsule should there be a need to make an escape before the new spacecraft arrives. Because of the Soyuz swap, the current crew could extend its stay to September for a full year on the ISS. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando.
5: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin has been released from the hospital. We hear from retired NFL linebacker Ryan Shazier about the process of coming back from a major injury. It's seven nineteen.
9: Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. I'm Scott Tong. Gun
14: violence is increasing in Milwaukee, where homicides hit a record high for a third year in a row. The city plans to hire more police officers, and we'll talk to someone trying to make a safer Milwaukee for 2023. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: One of the stories we'll be following today on 90.9 WBOR and at WBOR.org. Today, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will announce the creation of a new Office of Youth Engagement and Advancement. Its goal will be looking for new opportunities for young people in the city. In your forecast, cloudy with a high near 40 today, rain likely after about 3 p.m. The showers continue tonight as the winds pick up. Temperatures actually rise overnight to the low 50s. Tomorrow, fog and more rain in the morning, then cloudy with a high near 58. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 720.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe a nighttime cold-and-flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold-and-flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool, designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
5: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown.
11: I'm Layla Faldin.
15: And
16: I'm A. martinez Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin has survived an injury that could have killed him. But long after media and fan attention moves on, Hamlin will be working on his recovery. Ryan Shazier has some idea of what that road ahead could feel like for Hamlin. Shazier's spinal column was damaged during a routine tackle in 2017 when he played for the Pittsburgh Steelers.
12: And Ryan Shazier, the leader of this Pittsburgh defense, is not getting up. And not to be an alarmist, John, but I don't think anybody has seen his legs move at all.
16: Like Hamlin's injury, millions of people watched it live on Monday Night Football, and it also happened in Cincinnati on the same field where Hamlin was injured. Shazier took us back to that game, that play, that moment
17: that changed his life. I made his tackle a thousand times before, and unfortunately he was running a little bit faster than I thought he was, and when I made the tackle, my head hit his hip which caused me to fracture multiple vertebrae in my back and caused me to have a spinal cord injury. I definitely knew something was wrong because I had a burning sensation in my back. When I got hurt, it was more of, oh man, I'm I'm hurt pretty bad, but I, I should be okay. And that wasn't the case. At what point did you realize, uh oh, this is gonna be
16: longer than just maybe getting injured and coming back in a week or two?
17: I think it was more of uh, a week and a half, almost two weeks i was thinking of it more like a stinger so for those who play football a stinger is something that you'll hit somebody and your arm feel like it goes numb but you kind of get the feeling back but after almost two weeks the feeling was not coming back doctors
16: told shazier's family there was only a 20 percent chance he would ever walk again
17: i pretty much had to relearn everything everything that you take for granted that involves your core to lower body you know using the bathroom you know walking up the stairs or being able to jog somewhere or just being able to get out of a seat. Just learning all those things I had to learn all over again. What
16: was it like to just have these little victories, Ryan, like moving your toe or actually getting up on
17: your own? Uh, Those moments were big to me. And it might not mean much to somebody else, but it means everything to you. And there were moments where I was just trying to raise a toe or lift a lift my ankle I raise my knee and for me it was everything it was almost like receiving a, a scholarship to go to college it was like going to Ohio State it was like getting drafted in the first round because these are things that people said I would never do and I was able to do them
16: in those initial steps those first few steps in your recovery what was the thing that brought you the most joy
17: the thing that gave me the most joy was to be able to walk at my wedding and dance at my wedding We pushed back our wedding because I told myself I wanted to be able to walk down the aisle. I wanted to be able to dance with my wife with no help, with no resistance.
16: It took Shazier longer to accept that he could not return to playing professional football.
17: It took me a while. It took me about two or three years because I was rehabbing and I was getting a lot better. And I was on the path of possibly getting back to playing football again but i was just starting to notice that some of my movements were a little bit slower than i wanted to be i wasn't able to run as fast as i wanted to be able to run
16: everyone has sometimes feelings of of letting people down did you struggle with that like maybe letting
17: yourself down your family or your teammates i remember i talked to my father and my mother and my wife and and i told them i was like man I'm, i'm i'm a failure i'm sorry i let you guys down and they looked at me and said ryan what are you talking about and I was saying I I got hurt. I'm not being able to play football at a high level. And my wife and my father and my mother all told me, Ryan, playing football is a bonus. You know, being a man that you are is what we appreciate, what we love about you, not just because you can play football. You're not letting us down. The fact that you're overcoming this injury the way you're overcoming it, we look up to you more than we ever did you know as, as as myself I thought I was a failure but my family told me very quickly that that was not the case
16: so let's get now to uh what happened to Buffalo Bills safety uh DeMar Hamlin what memories came back what kind of things were you thinking about when you saw the injury when you saw what happened to him on that play against the Cincinnati Bengals
17: man that was a very tough moment for me because me and my wife were watching the game together and me and Michelle was just discussing what was going on. And I'm like, man, this is crazy what's going on right now because the whole play itself, how DeMar made a tackle, that's a regular tackle that he's made a 100 times. And then, you know, he dropped to the floor. And just to see just the scare in everybody's eyes while they're on the field, to me, it just kind of gave me flashbacks of what I went through. But then also, it, it just scared me to see what DeMar, and his family, and the Buffalo Bills were going to have to go through dealing with his injury what kind of flashbacks it was kind of everything in a quick flashback it was just the pain I went through the loss of the game that I went through the the emotions of just how I feel about football then and how I feel about football now just about how his family is scared and they don't know how to react they don't know what to do I was thinking about how my teammates looked when I was on the field I was thinking about you know being in a hospital and I had so many daughters around me that i couldn't even see the wall so it was just it it was just it was so many things that 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 literally flashed uh by so fast that i i couldn't even i can't even tell you just one thing
16: as you mentioned ryan your injury is a lot different than what hamlin went through with his heart I think there's a similar kind of road ahead for him. You've been down that road already. I mean, what's something that if he were listening to you right now, you would tell him about the possible road he has ahead of him?
17: The biggest thing I will always tell anybody first and foremost is, you know, trust God and then also just have a, a positive mindset. And secondly is just, you know, take it take it slow because you just want to make sure that you're in the best condition for your your health. You want to make sure that you're still able to, be the guy that you want to be so if it involves football or if it doesn't involve football just take your time just make sure that you trust the doctors and you also have to trust yourself you know what your body feels like and then push it as far as you can push it but also understand when it's time to to pull back as well
16: that's ryan shazier former pittsburgh steelers linebacker ryan thanks a lot for sharing your story no problem thank you for having me This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, it looks like inflation may have eased a bit last month and wages are going up, but so are prices. And residents in Santa Cruz, California, are cleaning up during a pause between storms. The onslaught is expected to finally end next week. And a quick reminder here that you can keep up to date on those stories and more throughout the day at 90.9 on the radio at WBUR.org or on the wbur mobile app. Right now, it's 729.
11: High application fees can be a tough hurdle for renters looking to move. They add up quickly and are often
2: non-refundable.
10: It's like, wow, they're taking all these people's money knowing that they're not going to have a chance to get it. Like, do you really need that
2: many?
4: How cities and states are trying to limit those fees.
2: This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30
18: on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Airlines are working to get flight schedules back to normal following yesterday's system outage. It resulted in thousands of flight delays and cancellations at airports across the U.S. The FAA is still assessing what sparked the problems with a pilot pre-flight safety notification system. Departures were halted for about 90 minutes nationwide. Wall Street and the Federal Reserve will get a look at inflation in the U.S. economy when the latest numbers on consumer prices are released today. As NPR's Scott Horsley reports, economists believe inflation eased a bit in December, though
19: it's still expected to be far above what the Fed wants to see. Forecasters think the Consumer Price Index will show annual inflation of about 6.5 percent in December. That's down from just over 7 percent in November and 9 percent last June when inflation hit a four-decade high. The price of gasoline is now lower than it was a year ago, and today's report could show the first monthly drop in new car prices in almost two years. Officials at the Federal Reserve are concerned, however, that the rising price of services, such as restaurant meals and car repairs, could keep inflation stubbornly high for some time to come. The cost of services is driven in large part by wages, which have been climbing, though not fast enough to keep pace with inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Department of Public Utilities has been under fire since last summer for its poor oversight of safety at the MBTA. A review of public records by WBUR found that the DPU has been allowing the T to file investigative reports of safety incidents months late. More now from WBUR's Beth Healy.
9: The T is supposed to file investigation reports to the DPU within 60 days, but records show that from 2021 through last October, 80% of the reports were late. In dozens of cases, the DPU let the deadline slide by months. Joseph DiLorenzo, the Federal Transit Administration's safety chief, says the DPU needs to ramp up its enforcement.
20: In their role as regulator, they need to make sure that they get the reports and they get them on time and they're not continually extending those things.
9: A DPU spokeswoman says the regulator is working to improve its staffing and transit expertise. State officials are debating if the DPU should be stripped of its oversight role. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy.
0: Members of the state's all Democratic congressional delegation are criticizing House Republicans for passing two resolutions on abortion. One requires doctors to care for infants who survive an abortion, the other condemns attacks on facilities that refuse to provide abortions, such as crisis pregnancy centers. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley calls it selective contempt for political violence. That's because she says the bill does not condemn violence against facilities that do provide abortions.
2: That is not what the other side of the aisle is concerned about. No, today they are seeking to mislead the American people. They are trying to conjure up hateful rhetoric, spreading misinformation about crisis pregnancy centers. Let me make it plain. Crisis pregnancy centers are no place to go to for reproductive
0: health care. Neither bill is expected to be approved in the democratically controlled Senate. The number of people experiencing homelessness in Worcester is going up. 586 people were homeless as of November of last year. That's up more than 1 percent from the year before. City officials tell the Telegram and Gazette a lack of affordable housing is contributing to those numbers. Worcester is working on creating more housing to combat the issue. It's 734.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com.
0: Making four wins in a row for the Celtics, they beat the New Orleans Pelicans 125-114 to 114 last night at the Garden. Tonight, the Seas visit the Brooklyn Nets. The Bruins will host the Seattle Kraken tonight, and B's head coach, Jim Montgomery, will lead the Atlantic Division squad at this year's n NA- all-star game. He has the second, he has the best record of any coach in the league right now. All the all-star game will be held next month in South Florida. Overcast with temperatures rising to near 40 today, we'll probably see some showers late this afternoon and into the evening. Toward nighttime, we'll see gusty winds and overnight temperatures rise to the low 50s. More rain and wind tomorrow, then cloudy with temperatures as warm as the upper 50s. It's 31 degrees in Boston at
15: 7:34. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
5: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. Prices are still climbing at a rapid rate. That's squeezing people's pocketbooks and lowering their quality of life. We'll get a report this morning on the cost of living for December, and it's likely to show inflation eased last month. But for a lot of people, it just doesn't feel that way. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to break it down. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Leila. Okay, Scott. Inflation has come down since last summer, but it's still pretty high. What's going on?
19: That's right. Annual inflation topped out in June at 9%. And by November, it was down to just over 7%. Forecasters think it was a little bit lower than that last month. But prices are still climbing a lot faster than we were all used to back before the pandemic. And that really weighs on people. I talked with Lydia Simpson, who lives just outside Nashville. She got a good new job last year with a sizable pay increase, but she still feels like she's losing ground.
0: The raise
3: in pay was just in time for inflation to hit and it was just completely negated this massive raise that felt huge at the time and then we were still just
0: scraping by it just feels like somebody's got a can on a chain they keep pulling a little farther away from us every time we get close to the prize
19: simpson wonders if she's ever going to be able to buy a house Uh, not only have home prices gone up but so have mortgage rates as the federal reserve tries to crack down on inflation
11: So how are people coping with this high cost of living?
19: Some people are taking on extra work. Uh, Simpson and her partner are both working side gigs as DoorDash drivers to help cover their bills. Other people are cutting corners here and there or drawing down their savings. Uh, Arian Navarro, who lives in Houston, actually built up a considerable cash cushion early in the pandemic when travel and entertainment were mostly off limits and when the federal government was sending out COVID relief payments and child tax credits. But Navarro says she and her family burned through that cushion pretty quickly as a result of the high prices.
3: Around 2021, from the government, we had that COVID stipend for the children. We were able to save up 10 grand, which we were really happy about. But, you know, everything became more expensive. So, yeah, that was gone. And that is gone right now.
19: Another way people are are coping, and we've talked about this before on the program, is leaning on their credit cards. And, of course, with rising interest rates, that's getting increasingly expensive.
11: Yeah, not a great solution for people. Okay, Scott, the big question is when do I get to stop asking you about inflation? (laughs) How much longer is this going to be a problem?
19: Yeah, this could take a while. Some prices have started to come down. We've seen gasoline prices drop, for example. And today's report could show a drop in the price of new cars for the first time in almost two years. But officials are worried that the rising price of services, and that includes everything from haircuts to house painting, could keep inflation stubbornly high for some time to come. The price of services is largely driven by workers' wages, and they've been going up at a pretty good clip. Last week, we learned that wage growth did slow in December, and if that continues, it could help to keep a lid on service prices. But Mary Daly, who heads the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, told the Wall Street Journal this week she's not ready to say we're out of the woods just yet.
9: I don't think we should declare victory on inflation, on the labor market, on any of the things that we're seeing based on one month of data.
19: The central bank is expected to raise interest rates again in a few weeks and to keep those interest rates up until inflation is clearly under control.
11: I'm PR Scott Horsley. Thanks. You're welcome.
5: Parts of California are seeing a break from a series of relentless winter storms, Businesses in the Santa Cruz area are using the reprieve to clean up before the next storm hits, but officials say true recovery can't begin until the last expected deluge next week. Remember station KAZU, Jeremiah Edding reports.
14: Capitola is the classic California beach town just down the coast from Santa Cruz. Sand, surf, and usually bustling restaurants and shops. It's one of the economic hearts of the Monterey Bay. But over the last week, storms in the ocean pummeled this place.
17: Yeah, it was apocalyptic. It was just amazing. The waves were crashing through the windows, through the railing, uh, tearing out the wharf.
14: That's Carl Hyman. He owns Toots Coffee, a fixture in Capitola for more than four decades.
17: And then the buildings all along the S18 here are actually built over water. So the water underneath was causing damage, the wave action underneath.
14: Toot's coffee is on the second floor, but Hyman's building had damage to the sewer line. And he lost power, and with it, all the food he hoped to sell to customers.
6: I'm just cleaning out because all the perishables are bad. The milk, the pies, the cookies, the cakes,
21: all that stuff has to be thrown away.
14: Just down the esplanade, Jeff Lantis and his staff sweep up the floor in the dim interior of the sandbar restaurant. But he's facing a much, much bigger cleanup. Like many of the ground floor businesses along the esplanade, The sandbar has a yellow tag from the city on its window, meaning it's
22: heavily damaged. These enormous waves came with the high tide at the same time and just rippled the floors and tore everything apart. I mean, we got lifted up off the ground about three feet.
14: The power is out. Dirt and debris are everywhere, and there's a hole in the floor that goes straight to the ocean below. Lantis pulls back the plywood on one of the boarded-up windows and reveals a view, the shining Monterey Bay and the destroyed Capitola Wharf, torn in half by the storm. At first, he says, he was sure they lost everything, and he isn't sure how much will be covered by his
22: insurance. But uh, I'm hoping that like, the civil engineer came through and said, oh, it's salvageable. But much of that
14: salvage work has to wait. Capitola Police Captain Sarah Ryan says right now, folks need to shore up what they can before the next storms come.
4: So we're not going to see as much recovery right in the here and the now, because we are still amidst some weather activity that's a little concerning.
14: Only after this series of major storms has passed after next week, she says, the real recovery can begin. The engineers, contractors, builders.
4: Yeah, I think we're going to really see it kick into high gear. I think I know more about planning than I ever thought I would as a police officer.
14: Everyone will have more to learn in the days ahead. The city's initial estimate is at least $2.5 million in damage. The destruction extends beyond the businesses that are right on the ocean to places like the Tuscan restaurant Caruso's, It's a block inland and didn't see water damage, like other places, but it has been without power since late last week. Owner Melissa Cerreteño is tossing out her entire inventory of perishable food, expensive meats and cheeses.
3: Even our wine, um, our wine is probably ruined.
14: That's because the wood-fired oven stayed hot and without power to run the fans that cool things down, the wine overheated. Once her power is back, she can reorder food and wine and get her business up and running again. But, she says, things won't be right until the whole esplanade is back.
9: We're all a community. So if it affects them, it affects all of us because together we're a village and the village is gonna be stronger.
14: It could take some time for tourists to return. Woody debris litters the beach. The storm smashed the pier, a big attraction. Much of the town's typical beachfront charm is in ruins. For NPR News, I'm Jeremiah Edding in Capitola, California.
5: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupert Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, Remembering a Music Legend. That's the sound of Jeff Beck. He died at the age of 78. He's being recalled as a guitar legend by those in the music industry. We'll take a look at his career. Cloudy and near 40 today, rain likely after about 3 p.m., then high winds and more showers tonight and a warm-up overnight to the low 50s. Tomorrow, a rainy and foggy Friday morning, then a cloudy afternoon in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, it's 31 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Boston-based Whoop is laying off 22 employees. That's about 4% of its workforce. This is the fitness tech company's second round of layoffs in several months. Whoop cut 15% of its workforce last July. The International Place office towers along the Greenway in Boston are getting a $100 million makeover. The building's owners say they plan to remake the entrances and... International Place's signature Florida ceiling waterfall. The plan also includes a new restaurant and retail space. Work is expected to last about two years. Several Massachusetts companies earned a spot on Glassdoor's annual ranking of the 100 best places to work. Boston-based Bain & Company was number three. Natick-based MathWorks and the Boston Consulting Group also made the top 10. It's 745.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at keepernpr.com. This is NPR. This is
11: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden.
5: And I'm Dwayne Brown. One of the greatest guitar players in the world, he blazed a trail impossible to follow. That's how Mick Jagger and Kiss guitarist Paul Stanley described Jeff Beck. Beck died yesterday at the age of 78. We're joined this morning by music reviewer Tom Moon. Thanks for being here, Tom. Great to be with you hey i i can only imagine that if i looked up the word guitarist jeff beck's face would be the one i would see
23: that's right and if it was audio attached you would probably hear him and you might only hear one note and that might be all you need because he was a master of the instrument in in its most basic form he communicated through his control of the strings. I mean, he certainly had all the pedals, all the toys, but he could. He was distinctive just through the sound of the instrument,
5: and he could play any style of music.
23: That's right. I mean, he comes along. His career begins with uh, one of the trailblazing bands of the '60s, the Yardbirds. He replaces Eric Clapton in the Yardbirds. He's there uh, during 1966. They record one studio record with him, uh, and. In that Through that one that period, he takes the Yardbirds from really like a blues rock cover band playing kind of all the classic Delta blues that everyone in the UK was obsessed with he, uh, into a realm of psychedelia, uh, into you know a lot of fuzz tones, some different things. You hear that on uh, Heartful of Soul, which was one of the hits from that record.
5: In fact, let's take a listen. But, Tom, Beck wasn't as well-known as, say, Eric Clapton. Why not?
23: <laughs> uh, I think he was more of a musician than a rock celebrity. Yeah. Uh, he was very much interested in the art of the instrument and the art of music. He explored a lot of different things. He had um, you know, periods where he played basically all instrumental music, jazz rock. Um, and there, what made him so riveting was he you you follow you wanted to follow him he would start a solo and y- y- with essentially a single note often with lots of space in between everything and it was that patience that made it riveting uh you know you hear you hear him some of these solos from the early 70s like this record wired um where he covers Charles Mingus's Goodbye Pork Pie Hat and it's not shredding it's mm-hmm. It's slow. It's kind of oozing, but he 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 pulls you into his journey, and you're with it the whole way.
5: We're uh, giving you another taste of some good goodbye pork pie hat from uh, Jeff Beck. We're running out of time here. Beck's career spanned more than six decades, Tom, but he didn't really uh, seek the limelight. What will be? What do you think he'll be most remembered for? The fact that he influenced
23: everyone else who did it, you know, uh, in the time since he passed away, we've heard from essentially every guitarist in the 1970s, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, uh, Joe Perry from Aerosmith, basically saying they grew up on that tone of Jeff Beck and that approach. And, you you know, Eddie Van Halen, everyone who played...
5: You've got to leave it there. Tom, thank you, my friend. Tom Moon, author of 1,000 Recordings. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Next on Morning Edition, after decades of effort, we preview the big day tomorrow when a monument to the kings goes up on Boston Common. It's the first addition in 60 years to the country's oldest park. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy... Friday
4: Eve. Friday Eve. Our, our colleague Marquise calls it Friday Junior, <laughs> which I like. Listen, I, I am so interested. This is a big deal, the embrace, mm-hmm. coming to the Boston Common, and it's been years in the making. I haven't seen it. What was the most fascinating part of, of putting the story together, reporting on this?
0: Well, I, I'm... I'm short, so maybe that's it, but it was way bigger than I thought. And I really, he mentioned how it's brown, and it, previously it was represented as shiny. Mm-hmm. And he explained, you know, that's something that we decided against because of the upkeep costs and.
4: I don't know. I just really felt like that was a Boston thing to do. Yeah, that's fascinating. Fascinating. I'm really excited to hear that story. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So today, we're in a different uh, vein today. We have an ongoing series we're doing called Budget Boston, which really just looks at the realities of how expensive it is to live here and that most people have to do it on a budget. We've done all kinds of things. Then we realized, okay, it's January. Let's actually do the budget part of Budget Boston. So we have uh, a, a member of the nonprofit organization, Mass. Cap, he is going to come in, he teaches budgeting, and we are going to go through how do you make a budget and what are the realities of making a budget that works in Massachusetts versus some other state where maybe housing costs are different, utility costs are different, et cetera. So, you know, kind of heavily in the news you can use, Maine, we're going we're gonna to take an average person and budget for them. Yeah, this that's great.
0: This is the time of year where landlords are coming back to renters and being like, are you going to renew or not six months down the line? That's so right. It's helpful to think about this now. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston Today at 11. Right now it's 751.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
4: I just got
7: my whole box of clothes. I was supposed
15: to TikTok is full of influencers posting fashion hauls, unpacking giant boxes of cheap polyester clothing.
7: A little two-piece set. Nothing wrong here, but, like, boring. What do we think? Is this, like, cute for, like, miami or something?
15: Fashion might be fast, but it's low quality. Would you even recognize a beautifully crafted garment anymore? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chinoy. A new addition to the Boston Common officially opens tomorrow. It's a permanent monument to Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King who met in Boston. And I'm standing before it now with Imari Paris-Jeffries, Executive Director of Embrace, the group that oversaw the installation. Hi, Amari.
1: Hello, good morning. So excited to be here and so excited to be sharing this memorial with you. It's uh, a -a once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity for us to, to build a memorial in Boston and America's oldest public park.
0: Would you mind describing for folks what it's like to stand here and what we're seeing?
1: I mean the first time I I, I saw it I cried and someone said to me before I saw it for the first time Imari when you see it you're gonna cry and I said I've seen monuments before I'm not gonna cry when I see a monument and, and I actually actually did I think the scale uh, and the magnitude is what is one of the things that makes this monument awe-inspiring when you see it. It is two stories high. The plaza is four stories wide. And and despite the fact that we're in the middle of the city, it's a quiet place. And so it's a a place of both contemplation and joy simultaneously. And so I think it's one of uh, America's uh, most miraculous pieces of public art.
0: I've read about it, but I didn't realize it was going to have so many details, like the wrinkles on his fingers and things like that.
1: Yeah, it, you know what made this incredible is, you know, there are roughly twelve industrial three D printers in the country, and during this process, we utilized eight of them. And so the details, you know, both the artists who crafted the embrace in the pieces and Hank Willis Thomas's vision of a, a hug, right? This this idea of a hug being both a representation of vulnerability and security. Uh, the the inspiration of the photo of Dr. King and Mrs. King embracing was was why this this was chosen. And in, in the photo, when you hug someone, you know sometimes someone's the top hugger, someone's the bottom hugger. Mrs. King is on the bottom of the hug. And you could see the joy and the love in the photo, but you could see Mrs. King literally holding the weight of Dr. King in her arms. And it also speaks to the power of black women and women in general being the anchors and the keepers of movements in this country. And so to have a memorial not only honor Dr. King, but Mrs. King was important to us.
0: When you said patina, do you mean like the color of it?
1: The, the color, right, so you see that it is darker, and some of the images that people saw online, it was super bright, shiny, and, and similar to the Chicago Bean, except it was gold. And so we, we decided that this matched the aesthetic of the common. This was Boston. Boston is is bronze, is heavy, it's heavy, it's understated, it's elegant, and we wanted it also to talk to the Shaw Memorial up the street, which is also the same bronze patina. And because we're in New England and it's winter a lot and it's cold a lot and it's sandy and salty a lot, we wanted something that was built to last. And this will be here for generations and something that's shiny and glassy. We would be spending a lot of resources, just keeping it polished. And we didn't think that was a good use of, of anyone's resources to do that.
0: The great thing about public art, like you mentioned, it's going to be here for a long time. Have you thought about what you want it to mean to people in like a hundred years, 200 years?
1: Yeah, you know, I think when people come, they'll definitely make their own meaning, and, and that was very important to Hank. You know, it, it looks different from different angles. And, you know, we'll, we'll take in a few minutes, we'll walk in the center of it. It'll be as if you will be standing in the center of a hug. And um, we, we want that.
0: I also read that it's the largest monument to racial equity in the country. Is that the case? And were you going for that?
1: We we, we were. And, you know, and... and it is the largest American-made bronze statue uh, in the country. It is Boston's Statue of Liberty. And so I think when people come here, I hope they feel a sense of pride and ownership that that this was created in Boston and that the King's origin story started here.
0: So as you mentioned, this is a historic city. This is a historic place, the common. So what does it mean? How does it change the meaning of the whole place to have this included?
1: Yeah, there there hasn't been a memorial built in the common in 60 years. There's been a moratorium uh, of building uh, things here. And many of the other monuments and memorials, one, don't look like this, and don't represent the amount of diverse peoples as this memorial does. And I, I was talking to uh, some other folks and, and they uh, they said they were surprised that we were able to pull this off And because this has been a project that's been in the making for over 20 years when Mayor Menino was the mayor of the city, there was always, there's always been talks to build a memorial for Dr. King. The only acknowledgement that Dr. King has in a significant way is a small plaque on Mass Ave on the side of a brownstone that's oftentimes covered with brush when it's summertime. And, you know, that says a lot for a city where every single corner every street, single street sign sam adams walked here john quincy adams walked here and so for such a historic city not to acknowledge the kings has been a, a sad chapter in boston's history and i think we're we're emerging from that
0: so i didn't realize you could walk into it can we walk into it yeah
1: so there's probably like eight wow eight people could stand here and so, like, it, we really captured, Hank really captured all of the elements of that photo from the bracelet, the cuffs on his sleeves, mm-hmm. the buttons. We are literally standing in the center of a hug. We're being hugged yeah. by the kings or by our loved ones, by our ancestors. And so that's part of the magic and the point of, of this this memorial.
0: You mentioned Chicago's Bean. Did you want this to be a ubiquitous you know, symbol of the city that people think of whenever they think of Boston.
1: Yes, as a matter of fact, we're, you and I have to take a picture, and we'll have to we'll have to post it on Instagram later. I think this will be one of the most Instagram sites in the city. I hope people Instagram their proposals. I hope they Instagram their birthdays. I hope they take their wedding pictures here. And so it, it is also a place of joy. So it's a memorial, it's a place of history, but a place of joy. And so I'm, I'm excited that it's going to be all those things to a, uh, a wide group of people.
0: Imari Perez-Jeffries, Executive Director of Embrace. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
18: How I got all my...
24: You know my soul, I wonder how I made it over, how I
8: got over. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: President Biden's lawyers have reportedly found a second batch of classified documents at another location. Republicans, meanwhile, are planning a slate of investigations into the administration. It's Thursday, January 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, Goldman Sachs is the latest company to announce big layoffs in response to concerns about the economy.
7: The big question is, What's the outlook for a potential recession? How long, how deep? What are they seeing from the bottom up?
0: Also this hour, the State Department of Public Utilities is under fire for allowing the MBTA to delay repairs and miss deadlines for accident reports.
17: You're not there to be in bed with each other, you're there to be independent of each other.
0: And a New York Republican group calls on Congressman George Santos to resign over lying about his resume. In sports, the Celtics win. Cloudy this morning, rain this afternoon, near 40. It's 8.01. Now the
2: news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Federal Aviation Administration says a damaged computer database file is to blame for yesterday's nationwide ground stop. More than 10,000 flights were delayed or canceled after an FAA safety system went offline. It's been restored. Tim Campbell advises executives in the airline industry and was formerly with American Airlines. He says the FAA is trying to upgrade its systems.
12: The FAA is in the midst of a multi-year billion-dollar-plus program to modernize the airspace called NextGen. Now, uh,
25: next-generation challenges and complexities the, the FAA faces in trying to update these systems. It's not because they don't want to. It's not because industry doesn't want them to. But, you know, they're subject to the, the whims of funding.
2: The FAA says it's investigating the computer glitch, but says there's no evidence of a cyber attack. Forecasters say the bad weather will continue today in northern California. New storms are triggering more flood and wind warnings. At least 17 people have been killed in California as a result of the weather. Extreme weather has plagued many parts of the country this fall and winter, but few places have been as affected by the changing climate recently as California. NPR's Juma Say reports.
20: A series of rainstorms in both northern and southern California has left a devastating wake taking lives, flooding towns, and amid the latest round of downpours, put nearly 100,000 residents under evacuation orders. Brian Garcia is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says these extreme weather events are an ominous indication of what's to come. The
12: question now is how often are we seeing these storms, and will they become more frequent and more intense? The expectation is that they will become more extreme.
20: Experts say the cost of storm damage could top $1 billion. $1 billion. That's a bleak estimate, given 2022 was already one of the worst on record for large-scale weather and climate disasters around the country. Juma Say, NPR News.
2: Later this morning, President Biden will deliver remarks at a memorial service in Washington for former Defense Secretary Ash Carter. He died last fall. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. Ash Carter was nominated by former President Barack Obama as the nation's 25th Secretary of Defense. During his tenure, Carter ended the ban of transgender officers in the military. He also opened all military roles to women, overriding a request by the Marine Corps to continue to exempt women from certain positions. In a statement, President Biden said Carter was guided by a strong, steady moral compass and a vision of using his life for public purpose. Carter, a Philadelphia native, died after a sudden cardiac event in October of last year. He was 68 years old. Windsor-Johnston, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Construction is underway on a controversial electrical substation in East Boston. The project was first proposed by the utility Eversource more than eight years ago. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports it's drawn intense criticism from people living nearby.
3: East Boston resident John Walkie went over to the site as some of the first construction vehicles arrived. He says there wasn't much activity, mostly just workers getting the property ready. But Walkie, who works for the nonprofit Green Roots, says it wasn't easy to watch.
16: You've spent now going on nine years of your life saying, hey, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't do this. And you're seeing that this thing is they're getting ready. There's a porta potty on site. It's it's like it's ready to go. It's very disheartening.
3: Eversource says the substation is needed for electric reliability and will take two years to build. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
0: A new report shows structural problems and a lack of coordination are contributing to the tardiness of Boston Public Schools' buses. Boston made a commitment to the state to have 95% of buses on time. It's still falling short on that goal. The report recommends that BPS change school start and end times to improve bus times. State gaming regulators are worried that Boston-based DraftKings employs too few women. The gambling giant is seeking a license to participate in the state's new sports betting program. WBR's Rob Lane has more.
23: DraftKings met yesterday with the State Gaming Commission. That's the regulatory body charged with ensuring that sports betting companies employ a diverse workforce. DraftKings representatives told commissioners that only a little more than a quarter of its workers are female Commission Chair Kathy Judd-Stein says those numbers are troubling, but she appreciates the company's transparency.
15: I applaud you for really being frank and humble and saying that you've got some work to do, and that's fair.
23: The commission will vote next week on whether DraftKings and a handful of other applicants should receive licenses to offer sports betting online for 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rob Lane.
0: Boston's new COVID wastewater testing program is now online. The 11 new testing sites across the city will give health officials a better idea of infection trends locally. Updated wastewater testing will also help monitor for new variants. The system's launch comes as regional wastewater infection numbers are down after a spike following the holidays. It's 8.06.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy.
0: Knightfoundation.org. The Celtics topped the New Orleans Pelicans last night at the Garden. The final was 125-114. to 114. The Seas will visit the Brooklyn Nets tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins are back on the ice as they host the Seattle Kraken cloudy to start today rain likely this afternoon the high will be in the near will be near 40 more rain tonight with some gusty winds it'll get warmer overnight up to the low 50s more showers tomorrow morning then clouds and a high in the mid to upper 50s dry and 30s for the weekend it's 31 degrees in boston at 807
10: wbur supporters include and pamela moon focusing on civil liberties foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel.
5: And I'm Dwayne Brown. Freshman Congressman George Santos is facing mounting pressure from within his own party. Yesterday, New York Republicans urged Santos to give up his congressional seat He actually admitted to lying about his background, his education, and his work history. He faces an ethics complaint about how his campaign was funded and a district attorney in his district is also investigating. Santos said yesterday he's not resigning. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman is one of the local GOP leaders calling for Santos' resignation. He spoke with co-host A. Martinez. So first off, tell
16: us why you're calling for Santos to resign.
26: Well, I think it's very clear that the people of the third congressional district have completely lost confidence in George Santos. His whole resume is a pack of lies. I think the most serious one was the fact that his parents were Holocaust survivors. Nassau County is home to over 300,000 people who identify themselves as being Jewish. I'm, in fact, the first Jewish County executive. And many of these people have family that were lost in the Holocaust. And by making that totally false assertion, that trivializes everything that their families went through. Quite frankly, I can't trust them anymore, uh, so I'm not going to deal with his office going forward. I'm I'm going to take other measures in order to uh, have proper channels with the federal government, but it will not be through George Santos' office.
16: The thing is, though, lying to voters isn't necessarily a criminal offense. And he has said that he will not resign. At this point, are you just at a crossroads and that all you can really do
26: is pressure him to try and resign? George Santos has to understand that he's a young man. And if he has any chance of rehabilitating himself, he's going to have to do a couple of things. And the first thing he's going to have to do is remove the stain that he is on his congressional district and on the House of Representatives by resigning. Then he has to apologize. And then he has to seek help because obviously he's a very troubled young man and the things he did are not normal.
16: Now, Santos has insisted that he has done nothing that amounts to criminal behavior. Nassau County District Attorney, though, has opened up a probe into uh, some of his lies. What do you hope to find through that?
26: The district attorney of Nassau County, Annie Donnelly, has an investigation. There were media reports that the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District is investigating. And I'm quite certain that the House Ethics Committee is going to investigate. And he has confessed that his whole resume was a lie.
16: I know it hasn't been that long that he's been in office, but is there anything to suggest that he has not been able to be effective on his job?
26: Yes, I have completely found it untenable to deal with him or his office and uh, I I do not want to deal with someone who is a liar. It's not just a question of me wanting not to deal with him. The fact of the matter is um, how can the people of the 3rd Congressional District be served adequately when they have an elected official whose whole life is based on a lie and he hasn't even accepted that yet.
16: Santos won his seat by narrowly defeating a Democrat. Are you concerned that if somehow he winds up being expelled from Congress, that Republicans will lose one of their seats in the House?
26: Well, this has transcended politics. This is about good government. And I believe that if George Santos continues to serve, that he will not be adequately representing the people of his district, which is half the size of my county. So. I don't see how he can effectively represent half of the county that I was elected to represent.
16: Do you wish national GOP leaders would be more loud in how they feel about George Santos, considering that it seems like this could be a slam dunk to talk about?
26: Well, I think that our national leaders will speak up about George Santos, knowing now that the local elected officials in that congressional district will not have anything to do with him and certainly will not support any candidacy of his in the future.
16: So if six months from now, we're still in the same place and George Santos is still serving his seat in Congress, where would we be at that point? Is, is it business not getting done in Nassau County or at the very least, will you be able to find some kind of middle ground?
26: Well, the good news is that We have a great working relationship in Nassau County with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So we can certainly go through him. We still have Congressman Anthony D'Esposito and Andrew Garbarino. So um, I'm very confident that issues on a federal level that affect Nassau County will be addressed.
16: That's Bruce Blakeman, Nassau County Executive Republican, calling for George Santos to resign. Thank you very much for your time.
26: Thank
11: you. Anti-government protests are spreading across Peru, and at least 48 people have been killed over the past month during clashes with security forces, including 17 civilians and a police officer just this week. The unrest began after the ouster of leftist President Pedro Castillo in December. Protesters are calling on the new president, Dina Boluarte, to resign. They want new elections, a new constitution, and the release of Castillo. For the latest, we're joined by journalist Simeon T- Tegel from Peru's capital, Lima. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with the violence we saw this week. Some are referring to it as a massacre. What happened?
21: So there were protests in Puno, which is a impoverished, largely indigenous uh, region uh, up on the Bolivian border around Lake Titicaca, which had voted heavily for Pedro Castillo last year. Uh, 17 people and what Uh, 17 civilians, I should say, and one police officer uh, have been killed. Most of the civilians, it looks like, were killed by live rounds fired by the police. Some of them may include protesters who were behaving violently, but we also know that the dead include a doctor who was treating an injured protester, a street vendor, and a teenage girl who'd been uh, uh, on her way to an animal shelter where she was volunteering. Um, So uh, Amnesty International are, are calling the use of force by the police unnecessary, disproportionate, and arbitrary.
11: Now, Peru's top prosecutor's office has launched an inquiry against the president, several cabinet members over allegations of genocide. What's the latest on that? What do we know?
21: So the, that that inquiry or investigation was launched only a couple of days ago. It's still in the Good. earliest uh, 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 phases, uh, but I have to say that in peru there 's quite a bit of skepticism about it. Um, the notion that uh, cabinet ministers and President boluarte uh, may be legally criminally even responsible for homicide uh, amongst other things is is, is serious. What doesn't appear to have any foundation is the notion of genocide. No one's arguing that there's been any systematic attempt to wipe out a ethnicity. And I was talking to one lawyer yesterday who believes that the genocide charge in the investigation has, put, has been put there deliberately by the chief prosecutor to actually undermine the investigation. So it allows the chief prosecutor, oh. according to him, to pose as a hero investigating this, uh, knowing that really um, the investigation is not going to go anywhere
11: because the government has um, excused the violence as as necessary correct
21: uh that's right um uh the uh the, i mean there's been a lot of back and forth and debate about this within well, peru happened, yeah. but the but the government has been uh arguing that uh, the protesters are terrorists um at, and critics are saying that really that's that, that that's absurd and it's based on racism and really a misunderstanding by decision makers in Lima of what's going on uh, up in the Andes.
11: Let's take a, a step back to the larger reasons these protests started at all. Remind us why Castillo's ouster sparked these demonstrations.
21: Um, so he was uh, really Peru's first president who wasn't basically from the white upper classes uh, or, or at least an honorary member of those, but someone who came from the rural underclass. And a lot of uh, poor, marginalized Peruvians really put a lot of, a lot of hope uh, in his presidency and are feeling very betrayed right now.
11: What is causing the violence all of these deaths that we're seeing?
21: I I think it's that frustration, but also the police response, which has been heavy handed uh, and, according to experts, is violating basic international human rights standards.
11: And how has Peru's government responded to the protesters' demands, if they've responded at all?
21: Um, The one area where they have uh, conceded is in bringing elections forward. They were due to be held in 2026. They will now be held in 2024. But a lot of people here think that even that's not going to work. The protesters want immediate elections. And if this goes on for much longer, the government may be forced to, uh, to concede that as well.
11: And it's been going on for a month. Do you see these uh, protests subsiding at all?
21: Um, I think that's probably unlikely, in part because of the police response, which has just outraged a lot of the protesters and a lot of people in Peru. Um, Even if they die down now in the next few days or couple of weeks, um, I think Peru is just simmering right now and uh, could boil over again at almost any point, uh, at least while this government, government is in power.
11: And how are the protests affecting the rest of the country when people are trying to get to work and feed their kids and do their daily lives, you know, live?
21: Well, it's having a big impact uh, outside of Lima. In Lima, where Pedro Castillo was very unpopular, we haven't really felt it very much. But in a lot of parts of Peru, uh, especially in the Andes, it's having a major impact. People can't get to work or, or, or their work is You know, if uh, it's not opening their places of work, Uh, a lot of roads are blockaded. So it's having a real impact. And as ever, that impact is being felt most by the poorest.
11: Hmm. Simeon Tegel is a journalist based in Lima talking to us about the latest on the protests in Peru. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, a nurses' strike in New York City appears to be over after three days on the picket line. But nurses still have to vote to approve the agreement. It's eight nineteen.
12: Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at ROADscholar.org learning.
14: I'm Scott Tong. Gun violence is increasing in Milwaukee, where homicides hit a record high for a third year in a row. The city plans to hire more police officers, and we'll talk to someone trying to make a safer Milwaukee for 2023. Next time in Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: It hasn't been a problem yet this winter, but with all the issues with airlines and flight delays lately, it's worth noting that Boston ranks as the worst major airport in the country for winter weather delays. The website Hopper says between December and February, 14% of flights in and out of Logan Airport were disrupted by weather. We rank just ahead of Denver and Cleveland. Cloudy with a high near 40 today, rain likely after about 3 p.m. The showers continue tonight as the winds pick up and temperatures actually rise overnight to the low 50s. Tomorrow, fog and more rain in the morning, then cloudy with a high near 58. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston at 820.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
5: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown.
11: And I'm Layla Faldin. A three-day nurses strike at two major New York City hospitals is over. Both Montefiore and Mount Sinai hospitals announced early this morning that they had reached a tentative deal with more than 7,000 striking nurses. Quote, this is a historic victory for nurses across the country. That is according to a union statement. Joining us this morning to talk about the deal is Fran Cartwright, chief nursing officer at Mount Sinai. She's a member of Mount Sinai's management and was at the negotiating table the whole time. Good morning.
27: Good morning. So, what were the terms of the deal? Our proposed agreement is is very similar to those uh, between NYSNA and eight other New York City hospitals, and it's. Uh, It's very fair and it demonstrates how much we value our nurses and how we put our patients first. And, you know, we're just very grateful to Governor Hochul and her staff and the elected officials for their support and also the negotiation team where we really collaboratively work together uh, to make so many investments that's going to support our Mount Sinai nurses, but also support our patients where their safety is our first priority. Did the deal specifically address the
11: union's grievances regarding staff shortages and patient care? I mean, nurses were describing what they said were dangerous conditions with as many as 15 patients assigned to one nurse.
27: First of all, I think the truth counts. So in terms of looking at the uh, our interpatient assignment and the numbers mm-hmm. while our staffing is challenged I will just say with the agreement that we came to we have very uh, good staffing grids Which we you know reviewed with our NYSNA executive team and we have enforcement language And that's the same or even better than what NYSNA agreed to with the um, eight other hospitals and this staffing enforcement provides uh, a real pathway to binding arbitration.
11: Fran, what was the biggest sticking point to securing the deal with the union?
27: So we actually came to an agreement and this agreement uh, also did include staffing grids with uh, staffing enforcement language. That is the same or better than what NYSNA agreed to with the other hospitals. And the staffing enforcement proposal provides a pathway uh, to binding arbitration. And one of the things that we um, also have been working very, very collaborative through the negotiations with our NYSNA executive team as well as our Mount Sinai nurses is With recognition that the pandemic surge, it resulted in a national workforce crisis. And, you know, nurses who care for patients 24-7, they feel it the most. Nationally, our experienced nurses have left the bedside. We know this to retire early, to return to positions in their home community. And many also left to become travelers. So nationwide, and especially in complex academic medical centers, we're now grappling with how do we retain nurses as we replace the experienced nurses who've left for all these reasons.
11: Fran Cartwright of Mount Sinai Hospital, thank you so much for your time.
27: Thank you so very much.
5: Wolf warrior diplomacy with its sharp-tongued, unapologetic rhetoric has been a cornerstone of China's interactions with the outside world in recent years, but that may be shifting one of the highest-profile wolf warriors in the foreign ministry there was moved out of the spotlight this week. And as NPR's John Ruwitch tells us, other signs suggest China may be trying to soften its
28: image. Zhao Lijian was known for his pugnacious approach as foreign ministry spokesman. He was quick to accuse others of hypocrisy when they criticized China. And he often took aim at reporters during daily briefings. Here he is in 2021 replying to a question that he didn't like. <laughs> Isn't Bloomberg a serious news organization? Are you really going to fall for a publicity stunt like that? Next question. On Monday, Zhao was moved to a new, much lower-profile role, deputy director of the foreign ministry's obscure Department of Boundary and Ocean Affairs. Ryan Haas is a China expert at the Brookings Institution. He thinks it's the latest in a series of steps that Beijing's been taking to try to lower friction with other countries.
3: It appears to be the case that China is is working to find ways to reduce external stress to focus on domestic challenges.
28: Beijing, for example, has been wooing Europe, where many have been put off by its close ties with Russia. It's also begun to thaw out frosty relations with Australia. And some also see a slightly less confrontational tone from China toward the United States. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will visit Beijing in a couple weeks, and Chinese leader Xi Jinping may travel to the U.S. later this year.
3: They've made a, a tactical judgment that in the current moment, they are better off by lowering the temperature.
28: The Chinese government, he says, hopes it gives them space to focus on some of China's biggest domestic problems in decades. Those include an economy that's barely growing and a huge wave of COVID cases. Yu Jie, with the U.K. think tank Chatham House says there's also another consideration.
27: China does not want to be seen as being completely isolated.
28: Xi Jinping spent most of the pandemic hunkered down in China. In the fall, though, he attended multilateral meetings in Central and Southeast Asia, including the G20 summit in Bali.
27: After we realize how much the world has changed after three years' pandemic.
28: Analysts say the shift in Chinese diplomacy is tactical. How much of an impact it has remains to be seen, particularly when it comes to China-U.S. ties. Chun Zhu is a professor of political science and international relations at Bucknell University.
17: The window for improving relations is open now, but it's very narrow, and it, very soon that window will be closed.
28: He says that's partly because pressure will likely rise on both Democrats and Republicans to look tough on China ahead of the 2024 election. And China's already an issue that both parties largely agree on. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking on Tuesday about the creation of a committee on U.S.-China strategic competition. There is bipartisan consensus that the era of trusting communist China is over. Long-term, Bucknell's Jurchun Zhu says China and the U.S. simply have incompatible strategic goals.
17: The United States will do its best to maintain its supremacy in the international system. China is rising. China wants to, you know, realize its Chinese dream. To become the dominant power in Asia. So right there, you have this uh, structural conflict.
28: China, he acknowledges, is trying to present a more friendly image.
17: Its fundamental policy is not going to change.
28: And neither, it seems, will that of the U.S. John Ruich, NPR News.
5: It's NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBR. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, fears of a potential recession has led Goldman Sachs to announce the layoffs of as many as 3,200 employees. And we hear about recovery efforts in Monterey County, California, after heavy rainfall led to flooding and power outages there. It's 829. And if you're looking for something to do over the holiday weekend, the WBUR Arts team has you covered with its list of five things to do this weekend. It includes a family film film festival in Belmont and a free tropical ice skating show in Boston's Fenway neighborhood. Check it out at WBUR.org.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners and by Eversource a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More rainy weather and strong winds are expected today in Northern California, where flooding and downed trees are becoming more common of late. Storms continue moving into the state from the Pacific Ocean because of conditions known as an atmospheric river. Remy Hummer is an arborist in San Francisco. The soil basically is like a sponge, and at some point, it can't hold any more water and trees become essentially
12: almost buoyant uh, in the soil and very loose and then you get the combinations of high
6: winds and that's when you get tree failures, meaning full trees uprooting and falling over. The stormy weather is blamed for at least 17 deaths in California. State and local Republican leaders in New York are calling on first-term GOP Congressman George Santos to resign. Their plea comes amid investigations into Santos's personal and campaign finances and criticism over lies involving his family background and resume. NPR's Brian Mann has more.
23: They demanded that Santos
12: leave office immediately. This is a guy who lied about his education, his family escaping the Holocaust, about his employees dying in the Pulse nightclub shooting. Republican after Republican stood up and said they had personal conversations where Santos lied to them in private as well, spinning all these tales that turned out to be false.
6: Santos says he won't step down. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Schnoy. The city of Revere is opening an emergency warming center at one of its senior centers. That's despite opposition from some residents. The plan ensures the Rossetti Cowan Senior Center will continue normal operations during the day. Up to 15 people will be allowed in to stay warm between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. Councilor Mark. Silvestri called the warming station a life-saving opportunity. He got into a heated exchange during Monday's city council meeting when a person opposed to the plan told him this would cost him votes.
7: We're talking about people's lives here. And you know what? If I have to lose some votes to save some lives, then I will do so. Because you want to know what? People are going to die in the street. And if you're going to look at them in the face and say you're okay with that, then be so. But you know what? I'm not. I'm not okay with burying people because it's 15 degrees out.
0: The city says the warming center will begin operations on Saturday. It will remain open through the end of March. Worcester is deciding if it should install dedicated bus lanes throughout the city. Some city councilors tell the Telegram and Gazette it would be an inexpensive way to improve bus service. They want to implement a pilot program but need the approval of the Worcester Regional Transit Authority first. Boston plans to add more than a dozen miles of bus lanes throughout the city in the next few years. And after years of planning, a monument to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King officially opens on Boston Common tomorrow. It's called The Embrace, and it celebrates Boston as the place the two met. Amari Paris Jeffries is executive director of the organization behind the sculpture. He says QR codes around the memorial will lead visitors to more information about the fight for racial equity.
1: It is an opportunity for all of us, depending on the type of way that you learn, listen, uh, hear, or, or visualize, uh, you can experience this memorial.
0: The sculpture stands two stories tall. It's the first new memorial built on Boston Common in 60 years. It's 8:33.
9: We're funded
8: by
15: you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp. Family run for 57 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com
0: Jalen Brown scored 41 points for the Celtics last night. They beat the New Orleans Pelicans 125-114 to 114 at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Brooklyn Nets tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins are back at home to skate with the Seattle Kraken. And the owners of the Red Sox say they have no plans to sell the team. Team chairman Tom 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 Werner said yesterday that the ownership group is seeking new investors but has absolutely no plans to put the team on the market. Overcast today with temperatures rising to near 40. We'll probably see some showers late this afternoon and into the evening. Winds will also pick up in the evening. And overnight, temperatures rise to the low 50s. More rain and wind tomorrow morning, then cloudy in the afternoon with temperatures as warm as the upper 50s. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston at 834.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C.
5: And I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. Well, so far, 2023 has been tough for employees at some major U.S. companies. Amazon, Salesforce, and McDonald's have all announced layoffs this year. Now, the pain is spreading to workers at one of Wall Street's biggest banks.
11: Yeah, financial giant Goldman Sachs says it could lay off more than 3,000 people this week. It's the latest sign of trouble in the yeah. economy.
5: NPR's David Gura joins us now to explain a little more about this. David, how are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. What do these layoffs tell us about, say, the bigger Uh, economic troubles ahead.
22: Well, Dwayne, this is a a huge warning sign given how integral big banks like Goldman Sachs are to the entire economy. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's less confidence. And as a result of that, there have been fewer takeover deals. Companies have held off going public. Instacart's long-anticipated IPO, for instance, has yet to happen. When corporate clients decide to sit on the sidelines, that really hurts the bottom line at banks like Goldman. It's bread and butter is investment banking, so it's been hit harder by this downturn than many of its rivals. Dwayne, last year, Goldman Sachs' share price fell by more than 10%. I'll note that was better than the S&P 500. That index ended 2022 more than 19% lower, but it was definitely not a banner year for the big banks, including Goldman Sachs. Wow, yeah, you said uh, Goldman Sachs hit more so
5: than its uh, competitors. Now, it, the bank's uh, biggest round of layoffs uh, since, what,
22: 2008? Are there other factors that Goldman Sachs particularly uh, may be vulnerable to? Yeah, another reason is this bank is not as diversified as many of its rivals. Goldman mm-hmm. Sachs does not have the kind of retail presence that J.P. Morgan Chase has or that Bank of America has. During the firm's century-and-a-half-long history, consumer banking just hasn't been Goldman's thing. I'm sure you've noticed, Gwen, you don't see mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs branches or Goldman Sachs True. ATMs. Well, the bank has been trying to change that in recent years with a retail banking business called Marcus, offering loans and savings accounts. Maybe you've heard of Goldman's credit card venture with Apple, but the bank has had a tough go of it. Competition for customers is fierce, and Goldman is going up against rivals that have been at this a lot longer. So this is something else that's led to these layoffs, and I'll add it's unclear how committed Goldman is to its retail banking business going forward. Just last week, the executive in charge of it announced that she's leaving the firm. Well, David, we've heard uh, from other companies, of course, that they're also course
5: correcting after the pandemic to, what extent do you think uh, that's driving job cuts on Wall Street these days?
22: Yeah, Goldman Sachs and other financial firms did add to their headcounts during the pandemic, which was an unexpected boom time for banks. Not only did they expand, they also decided not to lay off workers who didn't meet performance targets. They hit pause on annual layoffs. Well, those have started up again, and that has contributed to these job cuts at Goldman. Chris Kotowski is an analyst with Oppenheimer & Company who reminds us that banking is a business with a lot of ups and downs.
13: It's pretty volatile to begin with. And that's kind of what you sign up
6: for when you go to work on Wall Street.
22: So in other words, you're paid well on Wall Street, but if you don't make the grade, you're let go. Oh, my goodness. NPR's David Gura. Thanks, buddy. Thank you.
11: Nearly 20 people have died in California after a series of dangerous and destructive storms. And more bad weather is on the way. In Monterey County, along California's Pacific coast, evacuation orders are in place for several communities along the Salinas River. It's still rising and is predicted to flood this afternoon. Our co-host, A. Martinez, talked to Monterey County spokesman, Nicholas Pasquale, and asked about the possibility that the Monterey Peninsula could become an island due to flooding. Water.
16: access to the peninsula was cut off by flooding nearly 30 years ago do you expect things this time to get anywhere near as bad as they were
29: that time we are anticipating that that is probable obviously we're hoping that it doesn't happen but we are preparing for that very event and how are you preparing Uh, So we're pre-positioning assets and personnel in multiple locations throughout the county. Um, That way there's resources available should emergencies arise.
16: What kind of things does that entail?
29: Uh, It entails personnel, um, fire, rescue, uh, law enforcement, and also public works personnel. It would include equipment such as uh, high water rescue vehicles. It would include other types of vehicles um, from our sheriff's department and from our local police departments that are able to go into high water and make rescues uh, and, and then marine assets as well. And it might go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. If you're thinking about even going near that area, maybe think again. We love visitors, but probably, you know, the next couple of days is not the exact perfect time to come visit. I mean, how much worse could things get? What kind of damage
16: could we be seeing?
29: Well, it is expected to rain through the weekend. Um, We may get a slight break uh, come uh, late Friday or Saturday. What we're doing is we're preparing for the worst and and obviously hoping for the best. We have evacuated a number of small communities that are along the Salinas River. Um, We do have an evacuation order in the northern part of the county adjacent to the Pajaro River, which is the river that divides Santa Cruz County and Monterey County.
16: If things do wind up getting worse, would it be the kind of worse where no amount of sandbags could save people's homes? I mean, is it people would have to leave, I would assume, at that point.
29: Yeah, when an evacuation order is issued, um, that's the intent, that people need to leave and to find a a safe place to stay until the evacuation order is lifted. We've been going actually door to door, both with volunteers and and our sheriff's department and other law enforcement and first responders, uh, giving people flyers, telling them where they can go and where they can get resources um, so that they can be safe during this uncertain weather event.
16: And if all the rain that is expected to come comes, how long does it typically take for things to dry out, so to speak, to get to the point where people can come back and it's livable again.
29: In the worst case scenario, if we do get this kind of cutoff situation where the Monterey Peninsula becomes an island, essentially, um, we're anticipating it could be two, three days before the waters would recede, and then we would even have to do damage assessments to make sure that the transportation routes are safe for people to travel. How are people holding up this time around? You know, I think we're really seeing people kind of rally and people taking care of each other. Um, I, I will say one of the great things about this county is that it's very community-minded, very community-oriented. Uh, our community is very, very generous. Uh, people are helping each other, neighbors helping neighbors. You know, folks really rally in tough times, and this is one of those tough times that people are rallying.
16: That's Monterey County Communications Director Nicholas Pasculi. Nicholas,
29: thanks. Thank you so much for your time.
11: Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, California intends to dismantle the nation's largest death row, with condemned inmates headed into the general prison population. Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up on Morning Edition, a WBUR review of public documents has found that the State Department of Public Utilities, which is supposed to oversee the MBTA, often allowed enforcement of that agency to slide. Cloudy and near 40 today. Rain likely after about 3 p.m. Then high winds and more showers tonight. A warm-up overnight to the low 50s. Tomorrow, a rainy and foggy Friday morning. Then a cloudy afternoon in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston at 843.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team.
0: Now in business news, TD Garden will keep its name through at least the year 2045. TD Bank announced today it's extending its naming rights deal for the home of the Celtics and Bruins. The financial terms of the deal are not being disclosed. Boston-based Fidelity Investments is acquiring a Cambridge financial tech company. Shoebox helps startups track their stock plans. Fidelity says buying Shoebox will allow it to further expand into the private sector. This is Fidelity's first acquisition in seven years. It's 844. We're
10: funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. And Davis Mom, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. State officials are weighing whether the MBTA needs a new watchdog after years of poor oversight by the Department of Public Utilities. A WBUR review of public records finds the DPU has failed to use its enforcement authority, allowing the T to delay fixes that would keep riders safe. The MBTA was also allowed to routinely be late with reports of investigations into incidents. WBUR's Beth Healy has the story.
9: The Department of Public Utilities keeps a running database of all the T's safety incidents an orange line explosion in a rail yard, a green line collision with a person, a runaway red line train. Dozens of entries on a spreadsheet provided to WBUR are highlighted in bright red. They indicate the many T investigations that are overdue to the DPU. Out of 129 rail-related investigations from 2021 through last October, 80 percent were filed past the 60-day deadline. Dozens were months late. Joseph DiLorenzo is safety chief at the Federal Transit Administration, which released a scathing report on the T and the DPU last summer.
20: In their role as regulator, they need to make sure that they get the reports and they get them on time and they're not continually extending those things.
9: Late reports from the T mean delayed reviews by DPU and slow follow-up on safety problems. When the T has derailments, collisions, or near misses, the DPU lets the T take charge of the investigations. The DPU is then supposed to independently check the T's work to make sure it's thorough and gets to the root cause of accidents. But too often, that has not happened. The federal authorities have called on the DPU since at least 2019 to step up enforcement, to add more expertise to its ranks and to be more independent from the T. DiLorenzo says the DPU hasn't made enough progress.
20: We would have expected that those things would have been taken care of before we had to get involved.
9: New York City's former transit chief, Carmen Bianco, says he was shocked at the lack of improvement found in that federal probe. He was part of a review panel in 2019 that raised many of the same safety issues. He says a strong, independent regulator is a critical check on a transit system.
17: You're not there to be in bed with each other. You're there to be independent of each other. And then you need to be tracking
19: all the results of those investigations so that you make sure people are following
26: through on the things you committed to.
9: DPU leaders declined our interview requests. The agency spends most of its time and resources regulating gas and electric companies. A DPU spokeswoman says it's trying to fill new and vacant rail safety positions and has shifted some staff to assist. But the DPU has operated without sufficient staffing or transit experience for years, even as safety problems mounted at the T. Joe Aiello is the former chair of the Fiscal and Management Control Board that oversaw the T during an earlier phase of its crisis, from 2015 to 2021. He says the DPU was silent during his tenure.
25: At the board, and I as the chair had no interactions with the DPU at all during the six years that I was there.
9: Aiello says with all the challenges at the T, he would have expected more urgency and communication from the DPU.
25: That obviously wasn't the way they operate, so I did find that pretty surprising.
9: A growing number of state policymakers say the DPU should no longer be in charge of safety at the T. A spokeswoman for Governor Maura Healy says a soon to be named state transit safety chief will review the T and the DPU's role. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy.
0: This is 90.9 WBOR. Coming up, California is grappling with a $23 billion deficit, while Texas is preparing for an estimated $33 billion surplus. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at what state budgets say about the economy. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Robin Young is here in studio
8: to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hey there, Robin. Hey there. And, you know, of course we're going to have all the news for you, but I want to take a second to talk to you about your beautiful uh, feature today. I hope people go to um, WBUR.org to hear your conversation with the city official behind the new monument that's being unveiled tomorrow, the Embrace. That's actually an
0: independent organization called Embrace that oversaw the the design and construction
8: of it. Oh, and and what a beautiful, you know, the way he characterized it as, you know, Boston's Statue of Liberty. Yeah. I had a chance to go down also uh, with the artist, Hank Willis Thomas, who's the artist or the designer behind this extraordinary embrace of the arms of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. What, you know, I know what I felt underneath. How'd you feel under it?
0: Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about the artists, we should mention, like, everyone involved was a person of color, unlike
8: yeah. pretty much any other monument on the common. As you notice, most monuments are white. This is a beautiful brown mm-hmm. that matched Hank's skin. We couldn't help but notice. And to be under this embrace is astonishing. Yeah. I urge everyone to try to get down there, but also you can listen at noon. And listen to Rupa's piece uh, at wbr.org. Just beautiful.
0: Thank you so much, Plus pictures. <laughs> no pictures. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah. That's here and now today at noon. It's 851.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Professional Pastry Arts at BU's Programs in Food and Wine, teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky, buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks. More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. High
2: application fees can be a tough hurdle for renters looking to move. They add up quickly
4: and are often non-refundable.
10: It's like, wow, they're taking all these people's money knowing that they're not going to have a chance to get it. Like, do you really need that many?
4: How cities and states are trying to limit
11: those fees. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
18: Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Who should we
13: celebrate or blame, if you're worried about inflation, for all the continued hiring and hiring?
18: We have an interesting answer to share. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. I'm David
13: Brancaccio in New York. First, we just got the latest inflation,
18: the lowest
13: in 14 months, with the consumer price index falling a tenth of one percent in December. Gasoline prices fell sharply, although natural gas ticked up, and it depends on the prices you especially care about. Now, food prices went up three tenths of a percent last month, and housing went up eight tenths of a percent. Inflation in the year through December six and a half percent. S and P futures are down two tens percent now. Nasdaq futures down half a percent. The Fed's been trying to cool the economy, and factory activity is way down. Yet, at last check, there were still more than ten million vacant positions looking for someone. Frequent Marketplace contributor Diane Swonk has been doing some sleuthing. She's chief economist at the audit, tax, and advisory firm KPMG. Good morning. Good morning. All right. This is like one of those whodunits on PBS. Who or what is responsible for the continued strength of all this hiring, all these job opening notices, despite the Fed's best efforts to knock down inflation? You have a clue.
24: Yeah. You know, we've looked at this really carefully. And one of the things that's been absolutely extraordinary since 2020 has been the formation of high quality businesses. That means business formation, small businesses that are actually planning to hire people, not just people making you know crafts and selling them on online. These are high-quality businesses that could become bigger businesses down the road. That surge has accounted for more than half of the increase in new job openings. And it's really important because this is something that was absent in the 2010s. We didn't see much new business formation. We actually saw a lot of disruption where larger firms consolidated and smaller businesses just didn't form. We didn't see that innovation coming out of the small business sector that we had in, say, the late 1990s, and the early 2000s. That's back and then some.
13: All right. So entrepreneurs, startups, creating businesses likely to hire more than just the founder and the founder's partner. That accounts for a lot of these job openings
24: absolutely we saw reduced barriers to entry when we pivoted to work from home they didn't need offices we saw you know interest rates go to zero and lending conditions ease and venture capital come out Like crazy to help fund everything from life sciences to better ways to connect in a work from home world. All of that has made the U.S. economy much more dynamic in recent years. And that's where that sort of incremental increase in job demand came from. And it was significant incremental increase.
13: I'm hearing a little bit of a past tense in your analysis here. We're in 2023, and investment money, sometimes venture capital, will be harder to come by because of, for instance, the stock market last year, and the Fed is working to make borrowing to start businesses more expensive
24: exactly and that's one of the things the fed is of course trying to do is cool labor demand and cooling labor demand on the margin on those new job openings means cooling the pace of new business formation and higher rates do just that and in fact venture capital funds are being much more cautious in what they issue out there the only sort of still optimistic note that i'll pull from this is that we've had two years of traction for some of these companies although small businesses fail at a much higher rate than any other businesses out there I have some hope in the traction that they've already gained. All right.
13: Diane Swank, she's the chief economist at KPMG. Thank you very much for
24: this. Thank you.
13: Only one of America's sandwich shops became the Subway brand. Now the chain that commodified Italian-ish sandwiches is looking for a buyer. This from the Reuters news agency. Marketplace's
25: Novosafo reports on a sale that could net $10 billion. As a privately held company, little is known about Subway's finances, but a $10 billion price tag would be a slight premium on the chain's estimated annual revenues in the US. It is thought to have struggled in the last decade to keep up with fast casual segment rivals, and the number of Subway stores has declined in the US. It still has a formidable 37,000 locations in more than 100 countries. Rumors of a potential sale first circulated in 2021, as restaurants were struggling to recover from pandemic shutdowns. Corporate dealmaking has slowed over the last year because of economic uncertainty, rising interest rates, and fears of a recession. But if Subway does manage to sell itself, it would end the reign of the two families which have controlled the chain since its founding in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1965. According to the company, it began franchising in the mid 70s, and within a decade, it entered a period of rapid growth, reportedly reaching peak sales in 2012. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by
18: Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. It's a busy time of year for governors. January is when many unveil
13: their budgets for the next accounting year. California is dealing with a $23 billion deficit, while Texas could have a $33 billion surplus. Marketplace's Matt Levin now on the implications for the wider economy.
20: Generally speaking, state budgets kind of look like your average household budget right now. Income is still rolling in and there's still some leftover pandemic aid from the feds. But while inflation is eating away at households, it's actually helping states that rely on sales taxes. Richard Aukshire at the Tax Policy Center says that explains some of that Texas surplus.
1: Inflation is good for revenue and Texas is seeing this. If the price of stuff goes up, you also pay more in tax.
20: California depends a lot on a progressive personal income tax. Because the tech industry and stock market have struggled, the state is running its first deficit after years of surpluses. Should a significant recession come, Augsher says states probably won't be able to count on a divided Congress for help.
1: If I was in a state capital, I would not bank on the federal government
20: giving us the support that we think we need. The good news is California, Texas, and many other states have built up their rainy day funds. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace.
13: There's a report today a Swiss company has successfully pulled carbon dioxide from the open air and stored it underground. The Wall Street Journal says Climeworks pulled off what's seen as a milestone in sequestering gases that are changing the climate. The report says this was done at a quote, meaningful scale and has been verified by third parties Climeworks gets money by selling carbon credits to other firms. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. Free from APM, American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds this morning, rain this afternoon. It'll be in the upper 30s. More rain plus high winds tonight and overnight temperatures rise into the low 50s. Upper 50s possible tomorrow. We'll have a rainy and foggy Friday morning, then an overcast afternoon. It's 32 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe.
8: I
14: just got my whole box of clothes. I was supposed
15: to- TikTok is full of influencers posting fashion hauls, unpacking giant boxes of cheap polyester clothing.
7: A Little two-piece set. Nothing wrong here, but like boring. What do we think? Is this like cute for like
15: Fashion might be fast, but it's low quality. Would you even recognize a beautifully crafted garment anymore? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.